When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Podcast. I'm Randall James, and I am starving. With me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Good evening. All right. Welcome to episode 15, the 16th episode of the RPGBot.podcast. Tyler, what are we going to do today? We're going to talk about food. I am also hungry, so we're going to talk about food. If we timed this right, this episode releases on Thanksgiving Day, so it seems like a good time to talk about food, both in and out of game. Awesome. I guess it's funny we're bringing this up, because I feel like... In tabletop games that I have played, food does not actually matter. Yeah, I've had similar experiences. If someone has trail rations written on their character sheet, that is generally as far as people will go into food in their game. But I think that's a really missed opportunity because both mechanically and as a storytelling device, food can be really interesting and it can really bring a lot of immersion to your game. Just just the kind of foods that you encounter in any given culture will do a lot to describe that culture. Like drawing comparisons to real-world cuisine, think of the world a thousand years ago before we had like massive international shipping lanes and the ability to fly strawberries up to the United States from Chile. If you found yourself in a far-off land where you you and your family and people you know had never been there before, you show up, what are these people eating? It might be some animal you've never seen. It might be some grain you've never seen, vegetables, etc. What food a culture serves, what staples they live on, define cultures and civilizations in a lot of ways that I feel like people really overlook. Yeah, I think uh, we actually strangely had this conversation offline the other day, but, you know, the tomato being a plant from the Americas, which we now think is being like a critical part of Italian food, when in fact, you know, nobody in Italy had seen a tomato 600 years ago. A real world history, crops that were first cultivated in North America and now make up like 70 or 80 percent of the food consumed worldwide corn, tomatoes. I'm sure there are other examples and people who know things better than me could <laughs> come up with better examples, but uh, foods that's like a, that. It's a good start, though. Yeah, I feel like corn is, it, yeah, corn is its own episode. Every, every, yeah. <laughs> In addition to 
having this big cultural import that we can use for food as it does have some really interesting mechanics if you actually pay attention to it and you don't immediately spend your first 2000 gold on a ring of sustenance or take a trait which says i can feed my entire party because we're wandering through the underdark then you can take something like dungeons and dragons or even uh, other rule systems that are designed to be less of a power fantasy where this will work better and you can take food and turn it into something meaningful in your game by making it something that is not just ignored making it so that even if you're not having these fun cultural interaction you're still forcing people to actually think about what am i doing during downtime we basically think of this long rest as like here's eight hours where nothing interesting happens and then we go back to adventuring and like i talked about you know way back in uh, episode zero if you're reading a story or engaging with some media in general the character development is not going to happen during fights during this exploration i think that pf2 does a really good job of calling out that you have three pillars and you need to actively explore all of those pillars. You've got your combat, you've got your exploration, and you have your downtime. As an example, the game that I play in, we have been going for, I don't know, 10 sessions or something, and I just today learned that one of my party members has proficiency in chef's tools and could probably have done some really cool things with, like, been taking all these mushrooms I'm feeding us with and and doing fun things with them that would have built a lot of engagement with that character. And I'm not at all calling out that player. It's just like, here is a thing where if you stop to think about it, this is a way that you can introduce a lot of, please forgive the pun, flavor into your game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you you say that in uh, one of the regular games that Tyler and I are playing in, we, you know, Tyler plays this character, which is Bugbear Grills. And what is the feat that you took recently? Chef, uh, Bugbear Grills is a bugbear survivalist who grills. (laughs) Thus the name. It's, there's layers to the joke. Uh, We have made sausages out of basically every edible thing that we have encountered. Um, weirdly we have not encountered any vegetables so there have been no vegetarian friendly sausages but the it's day's been a coming. plot device Absolutely. I'm disappointed well, and, but it is like it, it is a lot of fun and it's actually playing a role mechanically because those sausages give us great gifts but occasionally like at some point if we're fighting with some NPC or trying to resolve an issue at some point inevitably Bugbear Girls is going to whip out a sausage and just be like hey Let's uh, let's let this go, huh? Huh? Uh, and luckily, everybody's starving, so that tends to work. Yeah, so I, that's a good that's a good range of things. So we're going to talk about using essentially food to advance the plot, and to or I guess before even advancing the plot, to set the stage. How do we world build with food? Uh, what are folks doing? What does it say about the world? You know, what do the feasts look like if you happen to be in an environment where this is happening? We're going to talk about a lack of food. And mechanically, how that impacts the game. And then in general, like, what are the rules that are available to us? And then finally, let's wrap all this up to say, like, as a DM or as a player, how can we use the food rules, probably focusing, I guess, in D&D 5e and then Pathfinder 2, um, how can we use the food rules to make our table better? Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. All right. Let's dive a little into culture. So I want to I wanna play a little game. 
I'm going to read something about a feast that the party is attending. And uh, I want you two fellows to tell me uh, what you think. Yeah, what do you think is going on? What environment are we in? What do you read from the description that I give you? All right, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So you arrive at the feast. A sunfish as large as the Duke himself smoked and served is served on a plank of alderwood. At the end of each table sits a serving platter, three stories, each loaded with raw oysters, shrimp poached in butter, and legs of crabs as large as a halfling's arm. What's going on? Uh, well, clearly we're somewhere coastal. Uh, somewhere with a major current since uh, sunfish is... I'm forgetting my marine biology here, but sunfish is basically the world's largest plankton isn't the word I'm looking for. Fish that just gets stuck in currents and goes that way. There's a word for it. And I know people who could explain it to me and I can't remember the word, but somewhere with a major current coves and stuff for oysters and crabs to hang out in, but somewhere that has both a large fishing industry and enough space to raise cattle to make butter. Okay. What's a, What's the smell in the air? Brine, largely. Brine and fish. So smoked fish, that, that's a really interesting and honestly gives away that maybe some time was spent in the Seattle area. You. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll smoke anything. It's fine. <laughs> Any feast immediately is going to be something out of the ordinary is happening. Maybe this is a feast because this is a a festival, this is a particular religious holiday, this is some great event has just happened and we need to celebrate it. Or maybe just somebody caught a giant fish. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's also going to depend on the setting. If we're saying that this is at court, then maybe this is just the head of state showing off largesse. If this is like the town square and the whole city has come together to put this on, then maybe that is something like people returning from a war, a hunt, a some, something to really bring a community together. So any feast is going to immediately clue you in that something out of the ordinary is happening in general. Um, and, and yeah, as for this one, I, I think Tyler really nailed it with like, yep, here we are on the coast. They have based a lot of their like work but at least their culinary lexicon on the bounty of the sea perfect all right i have one more for you you ready yeah all right uh so again you're gonna arrive at a feast because i'm not imaginative at the center of each table sits a large wheel of cheese roll for cheese (laughs) all right right, so good we get some good rolls (laughs) you know somebody really gets up there in their cheese roll you recognize an edam with its telltale tiny bubbling and soft yellowing of cave aging you notice a gnome dipping a dab of what can only be brie with a crusty bread, spreading a dark preserve before popping the entire scrumptious morsel into her mouth. A party host carries a fresh tray of berries to- towards a bowl of sweet cream, with hungry attendees following quickly behind. What do we know? What do we know about the people now? One interesting thing that immediately jumps out to me is a complete lack of meat, and maybe that's just my own biases. Interestingly, that was definitely intentional, by the way. <laughs> so... Neither of these had descriptions of anything. I I wouldn't so much call these feasts. It's because 
what one of the big thing about feasts that you see a lot of descriptions of in general, you're going to find a lot of variety, and there's not a lot of variety in either of these. Now, I don't know if that's just because this is just a, a single paragraph that you've given me for each of these. Yeah, I didn't want to go like Brian Jacques from Redwall and give you uh, 14 pages <laughs> of, uh, it's like, and then on this table they had, no, no, it's fair. <laughs> it's interesting to see, you know, just immediately you're seeing, okay, whereas the first one was just, these are people who live near the ocean and therefore have a lot of access to seafood. This one is, this is a culture that has put in a lot of work into making different types of cheese. You know, if you're going to get just like a farm cheese, you just get a farm cheese and you're, it's not anything particularly interesting. Making specific different types of cheese requires work and it requires actual cultivation of the, the molds that you're going to use or like not all of them require molds. Some of them are just like a, a kernel, but this acid, that acid. Right. That That is a particular, like, that's a culture who has actually put work into not eating meat and having cheese instead. Well, and I'll point out, like, you brought up the fact that I didn't describe any meat products, and, and that was definitely intentional, but also they're obviously raising livestock. Right. And so it's it seems to be some balance between maybe not consuming meat, but still not, still still raising livestock. So I, I, I guess I, I wanted to do these just to, like, highlight, even just from your description of food or your description with how locals are interacting with food, you know, street food is awesome. And describing like, as somebody's walking through the streets, not just saying what the buildings look like and whether or not there's like horses in the streets and, and hay at, at hay on the ground, but actually calling out there's a street food vendor. What are they selling? Why are they selling it? Tying that in can really develop the world in a way where your players will understand the environment they're in without you explicitly having to tell them what environment they're actually in, allowing their imagination to fill in the blanks because you told them things that are just so intrinsically tied with their own life and their own lifestyle. I really like that idea. I listen to a few actual play podcasts. One of my favorites is Dames and Dragons, and they they kind of explore the street food vendor concept uh, a couple of times. Uh, they have a chain of street food vendors called The Hungry Boy, and it's it's some combination of Euro Stand and Cheesecake Factory, where they have an impossibly <laughs> large menu and none of it's especially good, but there's one in every town. So it's <laughs> so, just Cheesecake Factory then. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your your wife your wife's gonna fight me. <laughs> uh, well, if there's anything I, we know about Cheesecake Factory, every time my wife goes to a Cheesecake Factory, there is some form of apocalypse. Uh, that, that's a subject for a different episode. Oh, um, not enough time. Yeah. So the the hungry boy, like they find one in every town, and it's this weird bit of in game culture that they have. And there there's bits of their setting that are like super serious, and bits that are really comical, and bits that seem like they're just kind of an out-of-game joke until you find out that there's some, like, big plot thing behind it. And I don't think they've had anything behind the Hungry Boy carts yet. But the existence of the Hungry Boy carts kind of sets the tone for the game as, like, hey, this is going to oscillate between stuff that's really serious and and brooding and interesting and then stuff that's kind of goofy and, like, yeah, we're going to get euros from a hot dog cart. Nice. And yeah, we'll link a, we'll put a link in the show notes so folks can find them. Absolutely. I guess let's hit let's hit the heavy stuff. What happens if you don't have food in 5e? Well, this is actually really easy. The short answer is 
there's a few pages that, well, it's all right. There's a few lines on one page and it's basically you get to not eat for three plus year con mod days, which is a little bit odd. That sort of thing feels like the sort of thing that wizards of the coast would tie it to. And then basically you just start getting levels of exhaustion. Uh, the way that fifth edition works, one level of exhaustion, some minor penalties, two, some more severe penalties, and then if you get to five, you're once again you're dead. <laughs> you can go eight plus your con mod days without food, and then you die. Yeah, so it's it's every day thereafter you gain one more level of exhaustion. Correct. Uh, and what level of exhaustion do you start like rolling everything with disadvantage? One. Well, okay. <laughs> at one you roll skills with disadvantage. At two, you start doing attack rolls and saves at disadvantage. I think three, your speed is halved, and also your life sucks. Four is hit point maximum halved. Five mm. is speed reduced to speed reduced to zero. Six is dead. There we go. Okay, so okay. one and two would both be impactful uh, in a, in a very significant way, especially disadvantage during combat, even. I don't even know how you would think about the CR in that situation. Like, what does it do? What would normally be like a, a medium difficulty fight become when you roll every attack with disadvantage? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's crippling. I, I, I want to ask the question. Has anyone ever played in a game where you got exhaustion because you couldn't eat? No. Not once. <laughs> okay. <Good. laughs> I, I'm going to hammer this point later, but I just wanted to ask that question. <laughs> and and um, Ragnall, you and I are playing through Icewind Dale right now, which is supposed to be kind of a survival horror in some aspects. And maybe it's just because of the, the way that we're playing the game, but the survival horror really hasn't come up a whole lot, um, both because we keep turning everything we meet into sausages and because we've spent <laughs> a lot of time in towns. Uh, we've never really had to worry about going days at a time without food. And that three plus con days without food, like a typical player character will have 12 or 14 constitution at a minimum. So four or five days before food even becomes a problem, as long as you have access to water, like that's that's barely a threat. To hammer down that they really don't care about making this a real mechanic, then once you eat, then that resets that count back to zero. Yep. So... A day of normal eating, you can go another, like, if you really needed to and you had a week's worth of rations, you could make that last a, a month and a half. Something like that. Uh, where you just go to day seven and then, or well, not day seven, day four, <laughs> and then you eat and then go again to day four and eat. No, you get a you get a high constitution, you eat on Tuesdays, and you're fine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I mean, th yeah, the absurdity of what you bring up, right? Like, I'm going to just Michael Phelps down a 15,000-calorie breakfast on the day that I finally get back to town, and then, boom, I'm good again for a week. I don't have to eat anymore. It, yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, so I don't know if you guys have taken a peek at the starvation rules for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, but Pathfinder generally tends to have rules for everything. When you look at the rules for something in Pathfinder and find that they're, like, weirdly shallow it's always a surprise so pathfinder second edition's rules for starvation and thirst are one paragraph which is less than fifth edition which is super weird 
if you can't eat and drink enough to survive comfortably, you're fatigued. And then uh, you can go without water for constitution modifier plus one days. You can go without food for uh, same amount of time. Okay. After a number of days without water, you start taking a D4 of damage each hour. And then after a number of days without food, you take one damage each day. And the damage from those can't be healed until you eat or drink, whichever. As long as you have access to water, a high-level character can go, like, a year plus without eating. Random, you're familiar with the number scale in 3.x. So, Barbarian, assume you roll maximum hit points, maximum constitution, toughness, etc. So, you're getting, like, 20-plus hit points per level. Plus, in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you get base hit points from your, your ancestry, too. So, add, like, 10 or 12 on top of that. 20th level character, you've got, like... 450 hit points and you take one point of damage per day you can go well over a year without eating and then have a snack one day and then just like use medicine on yourself and like just slap band-aids on yourself until you get all your hit points back and then go another year plus without eating it's it is nonsense i guess i i want to make the assertion i think the reason it is the way it is the reason we have a paragraph uh, in Pathfinder 2, the reason it is, you know, several bullet points in, in the PHB for 5e is that nobody cares and nobody <laughs> wants to manage their food. It, it isn't, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to back off it. It isn't interesting. If, if you make me in every single game tell you, I have these rations, I picked these things up, I bought this ring... You know, I have an aquaponic set up in my backpack, like whatever it's going to be. <laughs> I go, I forage in the woods because there's mushrooms out there or something. Like if you make me do that every game, it isn't fun. It isn't interesting. And I don't want to do that. I, I definitely agree with you. And with that said, one of the things that I frequently say is that 5th edition generally does a really good job of being a framework that you can build stuff onto. The problem is there's so little here that you can't. And I mean, technically speaking... I would agree with you. In a lot of games, D&D is meant to be a power fantasy, right? You're not meant to care about what you have carrying around for your hardtack. That, as you say, that's not a thing that most people find interesting. The fact that they have given you some mechanics, which are then frustratingly shallow, means that it's hard to say, you know, make a game around, what if I do want to have a 5th edition game where food is an important piece of it? What if I do want to have people wandering through the frozen wastes? And then, you know, we look at things like Goodberry, which is a first-level spell that solves the entire problem of hunger, (laughs) which is absurd. And now there are some people who try and fix this. You know, okay, it has a material component, a holly sprig. Okay, well, if it consumes the material component, that's at least a little better. Until you realize that a druid is what has to cast Goodberry, and... A druid can cast Druidcraft, the cantrip, to make a sprig of holly. So realistically, you should probably also, if you're going to you know, go that route, you should make sure that you also specify that things created by Druidcraft cannot be used as material components the same way that other low-level spells do. I want to pause for a second. So for folks who aren't familiar with Goodberry, what's Goodberry going to do for me? It makes a handful of berries. Each berry heals the person who eats it by one hit point, and also provides an entire day's worth of food. Like, all of the sustenance of a day's worth of food in a single berry 
If, okay. if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, it's Lembus bread, but fruit. Okay. Is it the same as the gum that the little girl ate in Willy Wonka? Uh, except Charlie that you're supposed to eat it. Okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a whole TV dinner with mashed potatoes and gravy. Like, it's, yeah, like do you have that experience? No. I guess that would depend on the druid casting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it tastes like oatmeal and you'll like it. No, I okay. So, yeah, you can well, – what you just called it is perfect, right? So if I have a druid – they can summon a sprig of holly and then use that to make a good berry, and now the party literally never has to worry about eating again. The, the mechanical issue of exhaustion from starvation will not come. Even if the druid isn't available, survival, the skill, essentially solves the same problem. You just roll a skill check to forage for food for some number of creatures. And like this skill, the results for the skill are specifically built around the normal size of an adventuring party. I think in 5e, the, the DC is fairly low to get enough food and water for like six creatures. So that is enough for a typical adventuring party plus maybe a couple of animals. So if somebody has, like if okay. someone's a Beastmaster Ranger, then yeah, you're going to feed everyone just fine. So it's once again the rule set saying, please, please, please leave this alone. <laughs> but, but it's weird because they bother to call it out and then give us frustratingly shallow answers. If they just said a thing you might want to consider in your game is that beings need to eat. Um, and Well, I say beings, and then once again they give us a lot of uh, races and, and other options where things don't need to eat. Warforged, a prime example. They just don't bother eating, which is fine. But then how does that feature into if you do want to try and run? It, it, the, the thing that has always felt weird to me about this is that for as much as they try and minimize the impact of food on the game, they also include a lot of things that specifically mention that they don't care about food. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, uh, another, um, so in 3.5, there was a magic item that was literally just a bowl and a spoon. And if you put the spoon in the bowl, it would fill with tasteless gruel that could feed, uh, I mean, it would feed up to like 10 people a day. So Robin Williams with the Lost Boys in Hook. <laughs> exactly. They keep bothering to mention, like, we care that, f that people are eating. We care that people are eating. But we also don't want you to care that people are eating. And that's, that's the part that's always felt really weird to me about how D&D has handled food. Okay, I want to. I I really want to tear this apart. Let's let's hit a couple. Like, what are what are the tools in our bag to deal with food? What are all the mechanics that we have available to us? And then let's come back and let's actually talk about how we how can we possibly make this interesting. The the most obvious one is like first go a place buy food. Like go to your inn buy dinner. More frequently while you're out adventuring, it's going to be trail rations. And then if magic is an option, good berry, there are higher level spells. Uh, create water has been like a different level in every edition. It's uh, third right now for uh, clerics, like create food and water. You can just feed yeah. as many people as you want. Don't you have the jars that'll make like oil and mayonnaise and water? And <laughs> That's right. The alchemist jug. Yeah. 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 Uh, just create like flood the local mayonnaise economy. Although, realistically, if you have water and you have mayonnaise, right, you'll make it. <laughs> they, yeah. they never said you had to hit a proper, like, macro blend. You don't need protein. <laughs> Where we're going, we don't need protein. <laughs> um, at, at high levels, you've got options like Hero's Feast, which 
depending on the edition, Hero's Feast can be like just amazing as a buff, but in some editions, it's also super expensive. There are options like Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion, which will allow you to summon a house, go into that house, and then servants will serve you a feast. It, if magic's on the table, like starvation is not a problem unless you intentionally just go around all of those spells. And, and I do want to clarify, like you called out the simplest thing is going to your inn. So we have the lifestyle rules, and the lifestyle rules are calling out like if you're super broke, you have this experience. <laughs> if you if you have some money, you know, it's the difference. Like, do you get a half a chicken and a bottle of wine, or do you get like a chicken wing and half a glass of beer? But for any of these things, they still count as eating. And so as far as starvation goes, we can wave it off with the popperest of popper lifestyle rules in 5e. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, even if even if it's I'm spending no money because I'm going to go dumpster diving at the back of that inn and eat the, you know, remnants of chicken wings, that's still <laughs> going to get you the food you need. I'm, right? I'm going I'm to eat the knuckles. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, mm. Yep, chicken knuckles, delicious. <laughs> well, you've never had a chicken finger? <laughs> no, but I have learned that whales have thumbs. Um, <laughs> a deep cut. Um, no, but I, lifestyle rules, which we will maybe get their own uh, episode at some point. So like you say, it's throwing... the, the One of the other big problems in in both 3rd and 5th edition, and they're different problems. So in 3rd edition, the economy was preposterous as a player character because by the end of level 1, you had more money than a typical commoner would see in their entire lifetime and their kid's lifetime. A typical farmer would subsist on a silver a week. A single gold piece is two months worth of their life. And if you think about it, that a plus one weapon costs 2,000 gold, and that's like one of the bare minimums that you need to, you know, go adventuring past like level three, that's insane. In fifth edition, it's a slightly different problem where money sort of doesn't matter because you get money as a reward and have nothing to deterministically spend it on unless you're... Uh, DM is graciously providing you a wandering menu of magic items <laughs> with set prices, but again, that you know that's that's not like what the rules say to do. There's some rages and stuff, but again, there, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to spend all this money you're making. Given that we have all this money, then yeah, why wouldn't I just every time I'm in town, just I'll buy every trail ration in the town because what's it going to cost me? Ten gold. Great. <laughs> That's because that's been the case. There's never really been any scarcity if you were near people. And if you weren't near people, then, yeah, like Tyler was talking about, survival. What I was calling out earlier, I, I'm in this an Underdark adventure, and there is a specific alternate background where, yes, you don't have to make a check. You've just, you have been exploring the Underdark for so long that you know how to feed six people a day by just existing. So there we go. One person takes a background and food is fixed for the entire party. I, there are several backgrounds in 5th edition where that's a thing. Uh, Pathfinder 2nd edition, it's... it Well, 1st and 2nd edition, it's so easy to, like, just bare minimum invest in survival to make food not an option. Like, 
Pathfinder 3.x, like one rank in survival and you're fine. Uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, if anyone in the party is trained in survival, you're probably fine. Like the These are not games where starvation is a realistic threat. So I have a question both for 5e and for, uh, I guess let's focus on PF2. I hear this idea of, like, if I hit a certain survival check, I'm going to find food for my group. Um, and so if I'm trained, I'm, I'm probably good to go. If I have expert level in PF2, I'm, I'm absolutely good to go. Is there any allowance for, like, I am in the darkest of dungeons where there is no moisture and therefore no mushrooms, no lichens, nothing like this. Similarly, like, I'm in the middle of desert, and again, there is no cactus for me to knock on. There is no roadrunner running through. What am I going to do? Is there a point where you say, look, the survival check just isn't going to do it because there is no food to be found? I think as a DM, the best... You could impose disadvantage on that, or as a DM, you could just outright say, like, there is nothing to eat here. But then that raises the question of, okay, but there's monsters. What are the monsters eating? And can I eat the monsters? Um, which, Wait, can, that's I, can I can I eat the monsters? What a great question. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. If if the monster is a walrus, absolutely have yes. at it. Uh, yeah, like if you fight a bull, yes, you can eat the bull. If you fight a gorgon, which is basically a monster bull, can you eat it? I don't know. That subject has been explored in a few mediums. I know MCDM, which is Matt Colville's thing, his company. They their most recent version their most recent issue of the Arcadia magazine has an article on eating monsters and the effects of that. One of the authors was on the Dragon Talk podcast recently and talked about eating um, Tarask Minsk Mints? Minsk? No, Mince. Minsk is a character. Mince is a food. Goodness. Makes sense, yeah. So they have an article in the magazine about what happens when you eat monsters. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, unfortunately. It might not actually be in print yet, which might be why, but it's a thing. So, yeah, yeah eat, eating monsters is a possibility, but who knows what will happen. Yeah, which, right, we can have a table for that to say, like, what, depending what the creature is and whether they were venomous or poisonous and on and on and on. I, I guess that's interesting. Like you say, there's a monster. What if what if there's one monster? What if there's a desert surrounding a volcano with a red dragon living on the top of it? You're you're marching towards it. You are in the desolation of whatever this dragon happens to be. (laughs) The desolation of Smaug. Fine. (laughs) You're in the desolation of Smaug. Yeah, then, then then that solves it, right? Like, there is no food to be found, because if there was, uh, Smog would have eaten it. And the only monster you're likely to encounter is him doing flybys, like lighting you on fire when you're trying to sleep. And, and realistically, that is a choice that you can make, but it's a choice that very few DMs make. And even if it does happen, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, great. I have between three and eight days until I start be- getting levels of exhaustion. At the end of that time, I'm going to have to be somewhere else or hope that we've killed something or finally bother tracking the rations that I wrote down on my character sheet at creation and which have never come up since. It's the, I'm just going to kill a red dragon. I'm an idiot, obviously. Obviously. And then if you go listen to our Fizzman's bonus episode, uh, maybe you gain cool draconic powers. (laughs) (laughs) Almost certainly. Let's let's try to fix this. 
again, I feel like nobody uses any of these rules. And I think if you told me we're going to play a hyper-realistic game where we are going to track this and we're going to track gold, like people are, I, I don't want to say they're too lazy to track gold in their games, but I, I think many folks are hardly tracking gold and jewels in their game. Their DM is just saying, take a magic item. Hey, you're cool enough now. Take an uncommon magic item. Take a rare magic item. As opposed to like, I'll give you one of those, but it's going to cost you 5,000 gold and you got to collect it. And, and so given, given that, I think the best we could do is we can say, we are going to have an arc. You know, we are going to storm into that desert. But before you even come close to approaching the desert, I'm going to let you know. Food is going to be an issue. We are going to track it. You are going to hit levels of exhaustion. Yeah, account for it accordingly. And if their answer is like, you know, we we hire a druid, I don't, you know, something like this. <laughs> I, may, maybe that's okay. Maybe what that says is that your players don't want to engage in that kind of game. And so as a DM, you should back off this idea. But vice versa, if you get engagement, if people are like, okay, this is going to be fun. Let's buy these things and these things and like, we're going to carry a potato plant like they did in Waterworld, you know, like something like this, like, that's great. Then you have buy-in and let's go play that. But I think the two things are basically make sure that the folks at the table are having fun with it. And I think the most important thing is like, you're going to be a rules lawyer. You're going to be poking at this for a period of time. Let them know it has an expiration. As soon as we get out of this environment, we're going to go back to the time where we didn't care. And you just ate something every day. I don't, I don't care what you ate. It doesn't matter. So if you're going to play a survival scenario or survival game, you definitely want to let your players know ahead of time and get buy-in. Like Just like if you're running a horror game, uh, your players need to be invested in the concept. Otherwise, they're just going to take the easy way out. Yeah, they'll take a background that gives them automatic food. They'll take uh, proficiency in survival and just be like, yeah, of course, I'm just going to survival check and solve all of our food and water problems cast good berry cast create water like all those things so having your players buy in to the concept is really crucial before you get started even if it's just a temporary part of the game because if starvation and thirst are a problem in the game they'll take up so much of your playtime. like unless people really want to do that and they're having fun with that concept they're not like they're not going to engage with it they're just going to find an easy way out if you do tighten those screws too much, like even uh, let's say you've got a party of players, like you're, you're level one adventurers, you're lost in some environment, you are starving. And like you have gone in saying, yes, we are going to pr- play a survival scenario. Food will be scarce. Water will be scarce. You'll take exhaustion levels. You need to manage all of these things in addition to fighting monsters and all these things. Probably... In 5th edition, probably the best thing you can do is to use the gritty realism variant. The gritty, the gritty realism variant is presented in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and in the description, it seems like the most important thing it does is just change how healing works. So what it does, a short rest becomes an 8-hour rest, and a long rest becomes a week. If you're going to take a long rest you're probably going to have to go back to civilization or some home base or something to to do that safely because if you get attacked in the middle of that week, start over, I guess. 
that really, really changes the mechanics of fifth edition beyond just, oh yeah, uh, hit dice. I'm back at full hit points. It solves basically, I don't want to say solves, but it makes magic less of a solution for a lot of problems because spell slots return so slowly. Goodberry is a great example. You have it, you can get it at first level. It solves all of your food problems, but your spell slots only come back after a long rest so if a long rest is a week and even the highest level characters only get like three or four first level spells and like you can upcast and stuff but uh let's say you're a level five druid you've got maybe 10 spell slots i'm forgetting exactly and you have to stretch those out over the course of a week are you going to use those spell slots on goodberry or are you going to save those to maybe not die in a fight and resort to trail rations and like foraging and things like that. So the so what I'm hearing you say is you be a multi-class druid warlock <laughs> so you still get to goodberry every day. That would work, I think. Uh I'm almost 100% sure that would work. Yes. But then that would probably work but then you're out your warlock spell slot. So like there there is an opportunity cost. There's always a way around it. Um, the DM can just say, hey, don't, because that will ruin the concept of the game. But the the gritty realism thing really, the gritty realism variant really solves a lot of those, like, I have solved all problems with magic things. Like, even the Elminster problem becomes less of an issue, because you can be like, oh, yeah, Elminster didn't teleport in and solve this problem because it takes him a week to recover teleport. So he's just going to get in a ho- like he's going to get on a horse and ride over land to this problem because that will get him there faster than teleport. Elminster being our all powerful being who could theoretically solve all the problems in the world, but doesn't. So why doesn't he? Yeah, we. I think we discussed that uh, last episode or the one before that. That's right. I'm just trying to <laughs> I fill in the holes in case somebody hopped in. Yeah. Um, well, and and like he- hearing this idea of grim realism, that does sound like a cure. And if somebody says, oh, I, well, I have a solution, I'm just going to multi-class to solve this problem. What that says is your table doesn't want to do this. You should back off it. You should come up with a different way to do it. If you're going to do a one-shot where this is going to be central, gritty realism makes a lot of sense. I can't imagine in a long-standing campaign where you want to... Well, let's take a step back. If somebody wants to play a long-standing campaign with those rules and take that on, and a part of that is going to be the potential for starvation or, or dying of thirst, gritty realism seems like the only way to really accomplish it now that you've brought it up. If that's the level of realism your table wants to play at, you go for it. My my offer is kind of like you do it for an arc. You know, you do it for one session you know, one all-day session, or you do it, you know, if you are you play games like we do where it's a couple hours at a time, you know, for a month it's going to be like this and it goes away. Gritty realism probably isn't a solution for that, right? Because there's no reason to justify that. It's like, oh, I used to get these things back after eight hours and now it takes me a week. But I, I do, I really like that idea as, is, like I said, like if we're going to do a long shot, a long shot, wow, if we're going to do a long <laughs> shot, <laughs> it, it's a great way to get there. It's probably my favorite variant role in 5th edition. 5th edition has a lot of issues around pacing and related problems, so gritty realism really makes a lot of those work in more interesting ways. The hard mode? D- 
<laughs> hard mode, kind of. The default rules are really good for dungeon crawling. I'm going to go have like five or six fights in any given day. But most people don't run games like that. Randall, you and I are in a published... We're playing through a published campaign where I don't think we've had more than three fights in the same day. And walking into one fight a day makes the game pretty easy because you're always at full resources. You can just go crazy in one encounter. This should be its whole own episode, but the Gritty Realism variant in 5th edition is really good. I don't know of an equivalent in Pathfinder. Uh, I don't know of an equivalent in Pathfinder 2nd edition. Like, if you're playing 3.x, which is 3035 Pathfinder 1st edition, you could just say, like, yeah, okay, long rest, take a week, and there you go. You have your you have your variant. I don't know how you would do it in Pathfinder 2nd edition because you have the option of using the skill medicine to to treat injuries. So the expectation in any given situation is, like, I'm going to have a fight. I'm going to spend an hour treating wounds and, like, eating snacks and stuff. So there's more there's more you have to fiddle with in Pathfinder 2nd Edition to make something similar work. But just slowing down the pacing of the game like that can make survival scenarios much more interesting. And if, and if this is something that your players are willing to engage with, then 100% it makes sense to take advantage of it. You know, it might create a more interesting game if folks feel like this is too much of a kickwalk or there is no fear of death. So Absolutely. Because I want to offer a couple ideas for things that folks might do to have an arc and then be done with it. Like, let's tease this out. Let's have a little bit of fun with it. And then we never have to think about eating again, other than the fact that we just assume we ate. One that I think would be a lot of fun, not just for food, for for a ton of reasons. Uh, Imagine being in a city under siege. Yeah. That could be a lot of fun for, like, food is going to become scarce. So even if you had infinite money coming in, Maybe you can't even buy food with coin because there's too much coin. There's not enough food. You know, maybe folks are trying to say, like, hand in your magic items or, you know, you're going to go do work for me. And if you go do this work, like if you steal this, take that. If you protect the wall, I'll make sure that you get fed, something like that. You can make getting access to food an issue, but a siege is absolutely something that has a, a time limit. And even coming back to the idea of, like, having the goodberry. If you can get your party to love the people they're under siege with, sure, you can do survival and you can feed your party and two extra people. You can get good berries and you can feed a few extra people, but you can't feed the town or you can't feed, you know, the orphans they're trying to protect. Like, you are going to have to come up with something else. And that's where using your skills, using doing the real role playing of like, okay, no kidding, what can you do? I think for a session or for an arc, would be a ton of fun for a lot of characters, especially knowing that they get to escape it. I, I do like the siege idea for a lot of reasons. And if you hadn't touched on the fact that, yeah, you know, if, if you are a even remotely good aligned party wanting to feed the people who are struggling through that too, that, that uh, I, I'm glad you got there. Something that I would think would be really fun. If you, while there are things out there like the world's largest dungeon, which is like a, something preposterous like meant to take you from levels one to 25 or something you know it's enormous um and it's just dungeon crawl realistically if you are dungeon crawling for weeks at a time that could well be a thing that you need to figure out where is this food coming from you know we sort of go back to the problem of i can feed the four of us by any of these number of methods if that is something that you have built in to your your game to say hey 
who are going to do this long dungeon crawl. Absolutely, you will not be able to find food there. There's nothing nearby for you to be able to stock up. You expect to figure that part out. That could definitely be a, a in the same way that, like you were talking about the desert, where like th there's at least little things you can find. Like I can find a cactus. If you're just in a well-sealed dungeon, there absolutely could be a way that that is somewhere you can't find food. That makes sense. Like there's there's only so many rats in the dungeon you can eat. Yeah, or or making it cost the player something. Like if you know, they come to a fork in the tunnel and they hear voices in the distance. And so it's a choice of like, I think I need to go this way, but I hear voices the other way. Am I going to go out of my way in order to potentially find something else living and then figure out what, what they're eating and steal it? Or am I going to keep going the way that I think that I need to be going? Like you can absolutely create dynamics. The other thing that I would say here is be a good DM. Don't, don't be a jerk. If, if they are doing their best and they're playing along and they're having a good time with it and they're just running out of rations because it's taking longer to get through the dungeon that you laid out for them. Maybe maybe you let them find a crate of four extra rations or the next monster that they find you know, happens to have something on them. Or if they find, like, goblins or orcs or something, there was some food with them. You can offer a lifeline. You know, playing this kind of game doesn't have to mean that you cut them off from everything. It just means that it isn't free. They're going to have to work for it. And when you do say, and you search his bag and you find two whole rations, you know, they're going to freak out, right? You know, it's like, oh, my God, this is great. It's, it's going to be exciting. I think that's going to be a real payoff in your game. No, I think that's a, that's a great idea. It's just like using the dungeon crawling itself to create this. But again, like warning them at a time, like, you know, there's, there's an old man standing outside with a cane. And it's like, oh, people starve to death in here. And then they have to take it seriously, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one... One other fun classic would be, you know, what if you were, like, either stranded on a boat or even, like, stranded on an island? You're in an environment where there's the potential to find food. Like, you can fish, and so you can do your survival checks and hit, hit it that way. But making the RP work to get through that, I think, would be a lot of fun. I think that could be an interesting scenario for probably not for, like, a full-length campaign, but definitely for an arc um, I could see exploring that and having a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. All right. So I think, yeah, I, that's my fix. Uh, so I, I, I like the idea of a one-shot where you focus on this. I like the idea of an arc where you let folks know that it's going to be it's going to be bad, but it's going to get better. And if everybody's into it, then you could have a good time with it. But I, I think that's the end of the food rolls. I think one other thing that we want to talk about is... Us, us the players, not the player characters, but the, the player and the, the game master. Uh, we, we like to eat things, and we get hungry. And so whether you're getting together as a group, which is a lot of fun, that I feel like doesn't happen as often these days, or if you're sitting on Roll20 or you're sitting on a video chat and you're playing that way, yeah, uh, we, we got to eat. We do. And there's kind of a lot of ways that this goes, and it... it it's almost like a flow chart for me. So like step one, is this a three hour game, you know, three to four hour game, or is this an eight hour game? Once you start looking at that, then this becomes, okay, is this just, we should have some snacks or is this, we need to plan a meal at that point. If, you know, if it's snacks, then it really boils down to 
where are we? Having played in many games in many places, you're going to come across all kinds of answers. So am I in a local game store? Am I at a player's house? Is this a place where hosting rotates? Is this a place where we're all going to the DM or all going to one player? As much as I like the social cure for uh, game mechanics, I also like the social cure for out-of-game mechanics. If one person is consistently hosting and everyone else is driving to them, maybe their contribution is that they're going to provide the snacks. If this is a thing where uh, you know, you're meeting up at a local game store, it, maybe it's just expected that everyone is bringing their own stuff. If you are going to have longer things and it's a meal, we should be taking a look at... Do we want to try and set up some kind of rotation? Because it's it's unrealistic to expect that any one person is just providing food unless that's part of an overall compromise to make things work better. That's where, as I do for, like I said, as I do for the in-game mechanic, I'm, I'm going to, for the meta mechanic, say, please, please take the social cure first because... Let's let's not have the Munchkin thing where you give the DM food go up a level. Yeah, I so so you talk about this. So I am all right, amateurjack.com. There's not a lot of content today on uh, November 14th of 2021. One day there will be a lot more, and a big focus of it is food and recipes and cooking things that are amazingly fantastic, but easier to do than you think they are. So like I love to do smoked briskets or pork like i make my own sausage we'll make like our own euros like there's there's a lot of uh and yeah all of this random is like i don't care about any of those things and so for that (laughs) i apologize but i mean this is a good point too we should talk about it i love to cook for a party um so i'm i'm from louisiana i right i have a, a cajun background i love to cook cajun food make gumbos jambalayas like big dishes and and food culture is like a big part of how I think about socializing with people. I want to have people over. I want to make them eat my food and I I want to watch them be happy when they do. If I'm DMing a live game, a hundred percent, I'm up for like cooking the day before and cooking right before everybody gets there to have things to be part of it. You know, I can think of nothing better than like, I'm going to smoke a ton of Turkey legs and that's going to be great. But not every party, like not every group is like that. Not every party is like that. And so if there's somebody who really loves it, maybe you let them take advantage of it. And if not, maybe if it is a burden, then we should share the burden. And if it isn't a burden, if it's something that's part of somebody's joy, then maybe you let them have that joy. But, and this is a big but, we should talk about dietary restrictions. And I think people feel awkward about that. Um, but you, yeah, we, we, we should. <laughs> and I think the easiest way, so like I've done catering for, for groups uh, this sort of thing. I think the easiest way to do this is just bluntly like, hey, does anybody have any dietary restrictions? And then you're not making it about just allergies or just preferences. Whether it is I have a nut allergy, I am a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, I'm a pescatarian, I don't eat fried food because I'm trying to eat healthy, or uh, I don't eat anything that is the color orange. Whatever it is, <laughs> you catch them with that dietary restriction and then find a way to accommodate without being a pain in the ass about it. So I think that's the that's the cut both ways of like if you were offering if you're saying that you're going to take care, make sure that you're actually taking care and that you're not. It's like, yeah, you're a vegetarian, but you're good with chicken broth, right? Like I can throw that in. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, and, and so it was actually. I mean, obviously, this if you are playing with people you know, this becomes a much easier thing because you're going to know that somebody uh, is 
intolerant to a particular food or is a vegetarian, for instance, but this is not a thing that is weird to ask as long as you frame it of like, hey, I'm going to maybe try and make something. Can you let me know? Are, are there any dietary restrictions? And and so it is that I ended up making vegan gluten-free garbage plates um, <laughs> for people once for my Strata game. And they were delicious. But, you know, that it had to be that way. And it was good. Would I have made it gluten-free if I hadn't known that there was a person who was insensitive? No, absolutely not. So definitely definitely get on that even even with people who you've known for a super long time if you haven't made food for them before check if they have any dietary restrictions like people's diets change over time random and i have a mutual friend who we've known for years and years and years like decade plus last campaign we were in together at some point i asked if anyone had any food restrictions and he had a nut allergy that i didn't know about and um nut allergies kill people so if I'd shown up and been like, hey, I, bl- I brought, like, mixed nuts for everybody. Have fun dying. That well, I mean, that's, been... Oh, no, I'm saying that, that's not the problem. The problem is when you're like, I made these candy bars, and they're delicious. And everybody's like, oh, candy bars. But, but smeared with peanut butter. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> yes. Yeah, so definitely ask. And, Randall, uh, you, you brought up how much you enjoy hosting and serving food to people. In a lot of groups, the Dungeon Master is carrying a lot of burden in a lot of cases. So the Dungeon Master is frequently hosting and running the game and sometimes cooking. In my opinion, if it's an option, like unless the Dungeon Master says like, hey, I want to cook for every game. I'm excited to do this. Like give them an out. I at least offer, like sincerely offer to bring food every time. The Dungeon Master is already doing enough, usually. And to make a really, really dumb joke, they are the land. They hunger. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. You're right. (laughs) I I told you it was a dumb joke. That's fine. It was also perfect because, I mean, the the Strahd game that I was in, I mean, that that was just one of the standing things is, um, you know, while the DM did host, another person who lived there was in the game, and it was just the DM does not participate in the plans for making or eating food because they are doing way too much stuff. 100%. Like, find that social cure. Like, work yes. that out and make that work. And and that's kind of what I was trying to emphasize is, like, if, if somebody really takes great joy in it, then find a way to, to allow it to work. Um, but 100%, be nice to your DMs, people. Come on. Well, I think we did it. I think we talked about food. Uh, it's like meatloaf the man, meatloaf the uh, the food. <laughs> this is my favorite combo ever. But anyway, <laughs> we, we can cut that if we don't, or we don't, either way. Uh, yeah, so uh, the question of the week this week, what is your opinion on diversifying saving throws? Uh, that comes to us from your boy McBatman on Twitter. This is our second question from your boy McBatman. So if you're if you're if you started D and D at fifth edition, you are familiar with a world where every ability score has its own saving throw. If you're a native of previous editions, there were only three saving throws in third edition and fourth edition. It was reflex, which is today's dexterity save, wis- uh, will, which is today's wisdom save, and fortitude, which is today's constitution save. So in 5th edition, there are now saves on all six ability scores. Uh, Pathfinder 2nd edition has still stuck to that reflex fortitude will trio. 
previous editions, they were called something different, like Fortitude was saves versus death, and there were saves versus spells. Like, go play Baldur's Gate. Go figure it out. Fourth edition, interestingly, I think was their sort of trial to splitting things out, because in fourth edition, there were still just three saves, which were Reflex Fort Will, but you got to use your better of two stats for each of them. For a Fortitude save, you're higher of Strength or Con. For a Reflex save, you're higher of Dex or Int. For a Will save, you're higher of Wisdom or Charisma. And then they sort of said, okay, well, now that we're getting all these stats in, maybe let's just split them out. And, and I think that's really cool. And to get to the point of actually diversifying them, that would really upset a lot of balance, and here's why. Every class is given saving throw proficiencies based around the fact that the majority of effects are going to target one of those three main ones, right? Dex, Wisdom, or Constitution. If something gets to an intelligence save, if you are targeting something on a charisma save, that's something that a lot of classes are less prepared for. And so that every single class is built around having one primary save and one off save, basically. And no class gives you con and dex or dex and wisdom. They've, they did that very intentionally. So if you are going to start throwing more things at charisma, now we're making it, okay, well, so now constitution and charisma are both common, then your warlock and your sorcerer are suddenly having fabulous times, right? Because you're, you're now targeting things that they're really good at. I would say that I would want to be really careful of doing that. And if you're going to do that, it involves a lot of tweaking in a lot of places to make it more interesting. I think the diversification in saving throws was kind of a risky choice, and I feel like they haven't leaned into it very much in 5th edition. Most things, like Random said, most things do still target dexterity, constitution, wisdom, but you do have occasionally outliers, like Mind Flayers, their Mind Blast thing, targets an intelligence save. Um, there are some spells that target strength saves, like Maximilian's Earthen Grasp is a strength save, and boy, that is a great spell. Banishment, I believe, targets Charisma, so there are a few standout spells that target those off-saves, but they're so rare that it's every example you can think of is a notable exception, just because they're rare. I do like that they diversified personally. I wish there was a bit more of an even spread of things that target each saving throw so that it didn't feel like, ah, yes, um, strength saves, intelligence saves, and charisma saves are the, the you know, redheaded stepchild of the, the lot. <laughs> Sorry. I just like hearing Tyler say redheaded stepchild, that's all. I know, it gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, on that note, uh, on the next episode of the RPGBot.podcast, we're going to talk about keeping the party together. Yeah, we have the holidays coming. A lot of times, uh, this is where good adventuring parties go to die. And so let's talk about strategy to get through it, keeping calm, letting cooler heads prevail, being flexible, and keeping playing the game that we love. Yeah, I'm Randall James. You can find me on AmateurJack.com and at Jack Amateur on Twitter and Instagram. 
I'm Tyler Kamstra. You'll find me at RPGBot.net. You'll find me on Twitter and Facebook at RPGBOTDOTNET and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. Uh, I'm Random Powell. If you Google me, you get a book publisher. Realistically, uh, you won't find me much on social media, so you'll generally find me here contributing to RPGBot both by way of the podcast and contributing some articles. And you may find me in places people play games as Harlequin or Harlequint. Awesome. Uh, this episode was made with producer Dan. All hail the Leisure Illuminati. <laughs> uh, you'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Uh, you'll find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe and share it with your friends. Uh, we're going to link to some other podcasts that we enjoy, some other actual play D&D podcasts that we enjoy. Pay attention to those folks, too. Give them some love. They're fantastic. Uh, if your question should be the question of the week next week, please email at uh, podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week. Sorry, what? Oh, Daniel Wives, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Caffeine, sugar, and marketing, 100%.